Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this monthly Market Insights, Phil Attreed, Head of Wealth Specialists, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about how the new Omicron variant and rising inflation could affect markets going into 2022. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello and welcome to the December episode of Monthly Market Insights. I'm Phil Attree, Barclays Head of Wealth Specialists. And once again, I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. And we're going to be exploring what's going on in the world of investing. So, Will, we've certainly seen more volatile markets this month than investors have probably been used to now for some time. The Omicron variant, alongside an apparent change in tone from US central bankers in particular, clearly the main culprits. But what are the team's views at the moment? Well, I mean, I think, Phil, you know, the experts have long warned us that uh, this pandemic, the variant sting in this pandemic's tail could be could be a shock to markets at some point. And, and that's certainly proved to be the case a little bit so far. It's certainly, you know, Omicron, the emergence of the Omicron variant is sort of part of that volatility story you're talking about. The data we have on um, Omicron, you know, in terms of this is very young, it's very new. And so we don't have many data points, which means that the story those data points are telling is volatile and shouldn't be listened to too closely just yet. We just need more evidence, basically. But what you are sort of, you know, in terms of epidemiological gossip, if there is such a thing, most experts seem to be saying that in terms of transmissibility, it does look like Omicron is at least as transmissible as Delta, if not more so. So this will continue to be a variant of concern. It should, you know, that means that there is a danger it will outcompete Delta, essentially. But on the, on the side of, you know, on the potentially more positive side, though, like I say, it's incredibly tentative. Don't take this too strongly. The incoming information they have at the moment is that it could be a little bit milder in terms of disease than severity versus delta. Vaccine efficacy information is coming over the next few days and weeks. We'll get more information on this. But again, uh, you know, the inferences people are drawing from hospitalization data, the age cohorts of people being hospitalized uh, is suggesting that the vaccines are going to provide some kind of protection. So, you know, the current view here is broadly speaking that um, you know, there is going to be a certain hit, a hit to certain types of activity. It will impede normalization, but it won't cancel it altogether. And I think that's the important point. So you're looking at shifting timing of certain things, but, but not necessarily something yet that investors should get too het up about. The central bank debate is interesting at the moment. Maybe just to be like me, but it, it is. There's got some sort of, you know, there's, there's some interesting bits about it. And, and if, the fact is that, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about how to measure the degree of generosity from the central bankers, you know, you've got to look at monetary policy in real terms, i.e. adjusting for inflation. Now, if you look at this viewed from this angle, you can see what's happened over the last couple of years is that monetary policy became very, very generous right in the sort of teeth of 2020. But actually, since then, the economy has recovered really briskly. You know, you're looking at the unemployment, everything. Thanks to policymaker support, you've seen a really very sharp recovery in activity and so on. However, basically, because inflation and inflation, expected inflation has been moving higher, faster than uh, the market's expectation of normalizing interest rates and monetary policy, the actual monetary medicine we've been delivering to the economy has been getting stronger more as the economy has been getting better. So that, that is something that central bankers are looking at. And you can expect that, you know, it would stay the case for long. You know, we, we suspect that next year is going to be about, you know, normalizing that, those real interest rates a little bit. 
And of course, you know, markets and investors and experts are having to get used to this new news flow. And obviously, the reaction that we've seen from investment markets and individual assets is whilst a little bit more volatile, has not been of any of the kind of making that we saw or, or magnitude that we saw last year at the peak of COVID. But it does seem like oil and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, probably most notable just for the sheer sort of violence of the movements that we've seen in those in particular. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, you can sort of, you can link a sort of supply story here in a sense. I mean, I think oil, if you talk to the sort of the experts in the space, they would argue that oil prices almost immediately or very swiftly incorporated the kind of darker scenarios associated with the Omicron, uh, Omicron uh, variant. So I saw one analyst suggesting that if you look at front end pricing and inferred the barrel of oils of, de- barrels of oil of demand that you were taking out of that demand, in, in, inferred by that price move, then essentially you were assuming three months with, you know, plane free skies. Now, there are a lot of moving parts here. You can't really say it so precisely. I'm just trying to give you an idea of the scale of the pullback. You know, I think there are others, though, pointing to other things to take into account, namely speaking that it is kind of shale oil's budgeting season right now. And what that tends to mean is that, you know, if you think about it, these guys are trying to make a profit like everybody, and they're looking at the oil price and saying, you know, with my slightly higher costs of production, should I think about that particular geology or reopen that well or so on? And so to a certain extent, in OPEC, it might be in their interest to have slightly lower or lower or, lower or more volatile oil prices around this kind of, you know, this time. That's just one potential input. But, and the point there, I think, is about, you know, investing in supply. And this is a key story with regards to all of commodities, to be honest, or many commodities, which is that particularly the, the old economy, the less green ones, there is, um, not only has that space provided very poor returns over the last several years, decade even, um, and that has made investing, you know, attracting new investment quite difficult, but also, you know, our environmental objectives have made it quite difficult to sort of attract new investment into the space. Now, the reality is that we know we're going to need some fossil fuels and some some of that stuff to get to that cleaner economy. And we need to access it as cheaply as possible. So how do you sort of, you know, that, that, that kind of story probably still stays with regards to commodities a little bit, or at least the upside case. With regards to Bitcoin, and again, it's a, it's a kind of supply story, isn't it, to a certain extent, which is that, you know, the attraction of Bitcoins and other kind of coins with a sort of finite supply built into their algorithm, what's the attraction of that relative to money which is under the control of central banks and, you know, various other political actors, let's say, or not, not that central banks are political, but you can see what I'm saying, other kinds of authorities. The big worry about, or the big thing that Bitcoin was answering is don't debase my money, don't print lots of lots more money and that, you know, therefore, you know, devalue the value of something in my, in my pocket. And Bitcoin was supposed to be in part an antidote to that. Now, the point about what you're seeing, you know, what I just mentioned with regards to the outlook for real interest rates is some are speculating that if Bitcoin and other assets have prospered in a world where, you know, liquidity or capital was abundant and cheap and real interest rates were falling and falling, the two are linked. Then what happens if that world is reversed? That now you have central bankers talking a little bit about where real interest rates need to head up and, you know, that capital needs to get a bit less cheap. How does Bitcoin do in that? So, so there's lots of stuff going on in this. It's not easy to characterize as one narrative, but I think, you know, Real interest rates is a really important story to look forward for for a lot of reasons and a lot of assets. Quite. I mean, referencing that point about central banker generosity in particular, next year should, as you say, start to see central bankers maybe removing that 
proverbial punch bowl um, a little bit more. So basically getting a little less generous. Interest rates also, you know, there's certainly expectation that they should start to rise with quantitative easing support being wound in a little. You know, what should we expect by way of investment market response to, 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 to that kind of environment? Yeah, and I think it's a you know it's a fair question, Phil. I mean, you know, we don't want to be too confident here. I mean, I think you know the one thing that you know people are making sort of comparisons in sort of you know pure valuation between stock markets now and stock markets in the late nineteen nineties before they went pop quite viciously in uh, you know with the tech bubble. Now, yes, in absolute terms, that's true. But I think the point that everyone makes all along the while is that the relative story is very different. You know, so nominal interest, long-term interest rates, you know, the discount rate, the risk-free rate of return, whatever you want to call it, they were 6% in the, you know, the late 1990s, there or thereabouts. You know, look at them now, the 10-year yield is less than 1.5%. So in real or nominal terms, the sort of, you know, the comparison with interest rates is entirely different. But I think, you know, our point would be is that interest rates, stocks have scope to absorb higher real interest rates, but what it might well do is change the leaderboard. So, you know, which areas of the market prosper uh, versus those which don't. There's some other points to make as well. And I think with regards to your sort of your outlook, it's not all of this stuff. It's you want to be able to separate it out and say, well, this leads to this and that leads to that. But as we know, they all interact with each other in complicated and sometimes unexpected ways. Think about your near term and your long term outlook as the broad edges of a sort of stream and you can everything else is, is possible in between. And at the bottom sort of, you know, less positive area, you know, you could say that maybe a micron is a blow that kind of further or more permanently darkens our approach to saving and investing or how we think about risk more generally. And you get that story of pandemics past where, you know, consumers and businesses are just a little bit more conservative for a longer time. And that's kind of long term. It's deflationary, even if we don't know what happens in the near term with uh, with inflation and, and Omicron because of what it might do to you know important supplier countries and so on. But on the upside, as we've said, you know, there is this kind of this productivity story, which is particularly interesting at the moment, you know, advances, you know, just look at the healthcare angle and advances in how healthcare is dispersed, but also treatments, vaccines. We really could be on the cusp from what you hear from some experts in the space of breakthroughs that have the chance to transform the lives and productive potential of a much larger slice of humanity. And this, this again, to me, is part of a kind of growing evidence locker that points to how productivity and innovation happens and happens on a sustainable basis. And this is the big question of, you know, all economists and economic historians and anyone besides it's, you know, it's the question basically is how does productivity happen and why does it, why does it continue? And there's, there's the pessimistic case, which you and I have discussed a lot, which says that, you know, look at the long sweep of human history, you know, the thousands of years of human history where nothing much happens. And then you get this little blip of productivity, um, which is the outlier, they will argue, you know, from the 18th century to now, that's the outlier. And actually, we're just about to return to those thousands of years of stagnation uh, from this fact. And they point to this kind of, you know, this story. However, to me, I think that sort of misunderstands a little bit, my little perch, uh, for that, that might misunderstand or risk misunderstanding the nature of why productivity happens. And I think the more attractive story to me anyway, is that actually the reason why you get sort of millennia of stagnation followed by this kind of pickup is that knowledge the type of knowledge that we needed to accrue, not just instincts, but knowledge that explain the world and the universe around us. The causal power of this kind of wave of knowledge, building wave, it required a couple of things. A, able, you know, for us to be able to codify it and write it down so that we can build on it and not go backwards. 
But B, it was about finding the ability to use that knowledge profitably, how to uh, do it. And it just took a while for that causal power to gather. But once it has gathered, its power is almost infinite. Its limits are not, you know, are not knowable from our little standpoints right here. And I think the point that's kind of really important, though, is not just the codification of that knowledge, but the thing that really changes and sets it off in the 18th century and still today is the idea of error correction, our ability to be on the wrong path, but for people to criticize and to find a better way and to look to find a better path to how to error correct. And that is difficult. That required the scientific revolution to happen. And that is kind of a key part of that kind of explanatory, not the buildup of that explanatory or you know propositional knowledge that has taken this far. Sorry, I'm on the same rant again, but... <laughs> It is important. No, absolutely. Well, but moving away from history to, to the present day, and I guess playing devil's advocate as well, aren't we at risk here? So the technological advances that, you know, we've seen in, you know, just this last decade or so, particularly around things like social media, have they not allowed us to sort of retreat into sort of little microcosms, little echo chambers that essentially actually reduce the opportunity you know, collectively to error correct, as you say, as we become more homogenous in our views. Yeah, I mean, this, and, and, and Phil, spot on. I mean, this crisis and, you know, not just the uh, the policymaker response of sort of asking us to go behind uh, locked doors, but also the, the technological response. We've been driven further into these kind of little citadels of agreement. I agree entirely. And that is essentially, you know, the opposite, the antithesis to error correction, to be able to put us in, in, into the framework where we can actually see stuff. And I think the point about this is, is that whatever answers we may have or think we have for the world around us as it stands, those answers will need to evolve to fit, you know, to your point, what happens, the unknowable sort of aspects of the future. And history proves that, you know, the tradition of criticism is central to that kind of ability to error correct. And I'm not talking about the kind of the anonymous bile that seems to prosper on uh, on much of social media, but kind of the idea of evidence-based challenge, the kind that is not distinct from civilised um, debate. And in a sense, you know, you can think about the kind of liberal democratic model. It's seen by some as the kind of the political version of this our error correcting kind of capability. The bet is essentially that democracy, it limits the damage or it assumes that the damage that can be done from a, an electorate, the whims, the ever changing whims of an electorate is significantly less than the damage that could be done by the whim of an individual unchecked by the power, you know, the, by the threat of deselection. And that's basically, you know, that's basically the bet. But if you look in the year ahead, you know, there are risks. Populations can go for, options that are not in their interests in a sense that's you know that's 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 always the, the risk but over time that's going to be you know over time democracy has proved good at that even if you know it, it kind of weeds out the worst selections rather than per permanently optimizing for the best ones you can look out for the french elections on that obviously but on the other side you know two of 2022's big threats are with the sort of regard that sort of territorial mores of a different governance model you know the straits of taiwan and the ukrainian border are two areas where you know that is, we hope that self-interest and logic would prevail. But, you know, there are risks there. I guess those are certainly some of the risks, aside from, from what we'd already mentioned earlier on, that we may well face ahead in 2022. But what about some of the positives that we might also benefit from as we look to next year? 
Well, from, from from the economic standpoint, you know, there's plenty, you know, there's plenty of positive uh, sort of dry powder on the sidelines, you know, so still businesses are running very long, low stock room. So there's a huge kind of inventory build that is set to help the economy at some point next year. There is also, you know, the prospect of, you know, there's excess savings that many people have talked about now in various countries they are kind of skewed differently in terms of who actually has these excess savings. But that's a sort of, again, you know, something that could be quite forceful in pushing the economy forward over the coming year. And also, you know, the reality you know, over the course of next year, we will see the sort of oral treatments for COVID ramp up. And that could be a significant, hopefully final blow for this this pandemic. I'm not saying that we're not going to live with COVID, uh, with, with the, the coronavirus for some time, this latest coronavirus for some time. But, uh, you know, that we could start to see a more meaningful return to normality as those COVID pills start to spread around the world. Those are all positive things. And the other side I would say is just take some pride where you can on sort of, you know, the, the fact that accumulated scientific knowledge when met with the right incentives led us to this these incredible kind of health healthcare solutions of the last two years which have taken us you know into a completely different place to where we would have been if the context was the same healthcare context that you had in the 19th or 18th or you know any other century so you know that does sort of show it illustrates some of the sort of technological capabilities. And I would say that, you know, we are entering the fourth industrial revolution. I think that's the point. And that for investors tends to be a pretty good time to be invested, uh, even if for wider society it can be a little bit turbulent, let's say. Absolutely. I mean, healthcare innovation being one of those investing for innovation themes that we spoke of over the summer months and, and wrote numerous articles as well. Well, as we head into the end of this year, thank you again for your insights. And thank you also to our viewers and listeners for joining us. If you would like to hear more from us over the course of the next month or so ahead of the next of these episodes, please do seek out our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we share uh, our latest views on developments. Otherwise, Will and I look forward to being back with you in early 2022. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.